Welcome to Writer's Blockbusters, the show where we treat the final edit of a movie like the script. I'm one of the hosts, Bob Rose, and with me uh, is Jimmy and Jamie. And right now, Jimmy's going to introduce himself. I am Jimmy George. I am a screenwriter and script consultant, and my Twitter handle is at Jimmy R. George. I'm not going to tell you my Facebook profile. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> Jamie? I am Jamie Nash. I am the a screenwriter and the writer of Save the Cat Writes for TV and the Save the Cat Beat Sheet Workbook. And, oh, I got a new book called Monster Stompers. Go buy it. If you like this podcast, go buy it. Throw me some shekels. Um, and uh, my Twitter handle is at Jamie underscore Nash. And you're not going to say your Facebook either. Um. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know what my Facebook is. Facebook. Yeah. Seems, I mean, I know it's like Facebook slash Jamie underscore. Nash it's probably just your name. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But today we're obviously doing the I think one of the first of these like this new rash of like product movies. This was 10 years ago, but I feel like this was the model for them. You know, we're doing the social network. And now we're getting all these like BlackBerry and Air and all this other stuff about how <laughs> how shit started because we've run out as a culture of things Tetris. to discover Tetris, right? Yeah. It's its own version of IP. Yes, but, yeah, but like you remember when like this movie was coming out, everyone was laughing at the concept of a Facebook movie, <laughs> and of course, it turned out to be like a classic. Um, so yeah, before we get into it, we're gonna go around and just say our relationship to this movie. We're gonna end on Jamie for this one. Yeah. So Jimmy, you start. Okay. So um, when this movie came out, I was like a late comer to Facebook, and so I barely even had any, uh, you know, understanding of the platform itself when the movie came out, and uh, so but. I'm a huge Dave Fincher fan, and I'm not like an Aaron Sorkin fanboy, but everything I've seen of his, I've loved, and I am a huge West Wing fan. Um, I've seen the West <laughs> Wing. Tw- <laughs> <laughs> That's Jamie's review of the West Wing. Twice, twice <laughs> through. <laughs> what do we got? Like sound bars now to press the sound yeah. effects? I love it. <laughs> Cue the whoopee cushion. Um, the uh, So, yeah. I, uh, I, I love this movie. I think there's a ton of craft uh, involved. It's a really hard one, in my opinion, to talk about what's instructive about it because so much of what's instructive about it is like Aaron Sorkin himself. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it's really hard to teach people how to write like Aaron Sorkin. But I'm excited about some of the stuff that's on our list to talk about. Cool. Um, for me, I was a huge David Fincher fan. So that was the only selling point for this movie. Like, obviously, like the actual content, even the trailer. I was like, "All right, Fincher's the only thing grabbing me." Um, I really enjoy. I really loved this movie when it first came out. I still say that it doesn't have a third act, in my opinion. <laughs> I like. I you know, I'm not trying to piss Jamie off. I I really like watching this movie. I think it's a really good ride, but to me, it just feels unfinished. But then again, that's one of the difficulties in writing something like this and making something like this. Mm. Also, our relationship to the actual story in real life, in real time, makes it feel like, well, it just doesn't end there. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. feel right to me and never has on the end, but it's always a great ride up until then, you know? Um, but yeah, I like this movie. It's one of Finch- the fact that it can be executed so well for something that is essentially people arguing in rooms. <laughs> just 
is all the craft on display from both Sorkin yeah. and, and and Fincher. But uh, I still feel like something's missing whenever I watch this movie. I be honest with you. That's interesting. Yeah, that doesn't mean I don't like it. I just feel like something's missing. Just want to be clear. Uh, that's it, Jamie. Yeah, it, I I was a software engineer, so and in, in, in some ways, like some of the themes here, I, I my software engineering came up in the original dot com era, like. Like back in the days of like pets.com and things like that. So it was right, like right. late 1990s. It, here's what, here's a funny, a funny story was I was working as a software consultant at a company and we were constantly spinning ideas for companies. Like that's something I really wanted to do. I really got in the business to be, um, to make games at first, but then that transitioned to, oh, games are boring to program they're fun to play and they're fun to design but the program is kind of boring um so i you know i got involved just like anybody else and i wanted to make a company and i remember a guy pitched me in 1999 he's like i was like what are you working on and he and i were very you know aggressive wanting to make company kind of programmers and he was um he was like oh, i want to make a social network and people going and i was like i don't get it isn't that just email and websites and i <laughs> I did not get it at all. It's, you know, this is probably around the time MySpace came. He never made that. And that guy was Mark Zuckerberg. Now, <laughs> this guy never made whatever he was doing. But I remember he pitched it to me and tried to explain it to me. And I just was like, don't we already have that with chat rooms and AOL Messenger? And it's, Your cynicism cost you billions of dollars. It, it really did. I did not. I, I was like that. I might have even said that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard uh, at the time. So, um, so anyway, this was kind of in my wheelhouse. I was always a big fan of computer science history. So the Bill Gates story, the Steve Jobs story, these are books I read. Even the guys who made Doom, there was a book about them. There's all kinds of, and I, they're like some of my favorite things to read and things like that. Um, they all have similar stories to this, by the way. Like any of these stories have like two competitors, one stole from the other. They're always pointing fingers at each other. Um, uh, so when I saw this movie, uh, it was in my wheelhouse. I, I can't say I was a big Aaron Sorkin fan. I never really watched West Wing. I, I think I watched it after this. Um, and uh, in some ways, I probably wasn't a, like I was kind of turned off by West Wing. I liked it more after I watched this. It's gotten quite a backlash these days. To be honest, yeah. uh, I've seen a lot of people like hate it now. <laughs> I I um, but after I watched this. Uh, this this has gone on to be probably my favorite movie of the post two thousands. Maybe I don't know, Lord of the Rings and stuff kind of came after that, and st I'm sure those mix in. But it really is like when if you ask me like, what's your favorite movie after the year two thousand? It's like this is the one I probably watch the most. I'm most interested in, and the magic tricks of the dialogue fascinate me. Um, I much like you say about the third act. I don't even bother. Like I was kind of thinking about it when I rewatched it for this. I'm not sure that it, it's the best save the cat or character arc movie mm -hmm. or anything like that. Um, it doesn't no. necessarily play by those rules quite the same as other movies would. So it really doesn't entertain me for those reasons. It just entertains me about every scene is just so amazingly entertaining. Yeah. Um, and the, the one other thing I'll say before we jump in about it also, I mean, it's great cinematography, the Winklevoss uh, twins, the the, the, score. Uh, the score. The behind the scenes of how they achieve the Winklevoss twins, that's yeah. like incredible. I know that's not writing, but it's incredible. Right. <laughs> there's there's just so much. And then every scene is just like, 
a master class of dialogue. Like even the smallest of scenes, I mean, he's swinging for the park on every single scene and, and connecting as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, he, there are scenes in this movie that have no right to be like amazing dialogue and they have amazing dialogue in them. And I'm just like, <laughs> wow, this is, this is just blowing me away. Yeah. Two people sitting at a bar. Yeah. Two people sitting at a bar or, or just some connective tissue scene, but he just goes to town. He's like, not, he doesn't take a break on any scene. Like there's no scene. That's just like, ah, this is a throwaway. He's just rocking it. So, um, and the other thing I, the thing I was going to say was I, I also am a big fan of biopics and it probably happened after social network, probably not before. Um, but I'll watch any biopic and I've watched the all the lifetime biopics and it's kind of funny to like if you watched like the um uh, <laughs> uh like i don't know the saved by the bell behind the scenes movie or something yeah, of lifetime. i love it right i'll watch all of those and they're it's so weird because this is that but it's done so much better and i think mm -hmm. you can see why uh some of it is dialogue mm -hmm. and we'll talk about it as we go on some of it is framing device um, mm -hmm. and then cinematography and all that stuff too, but it's amazing how this movie could be that I remember when Steve jobs came out, his kind of the next movie in this kind of series in some ways, um, there's like two of them, there's right? the other one was closer to a lifetime movie. It felt oh, like it? I didn't see that one. I only saw it's the, not, it's Ashton Kutcher, I think plays Steve yep. jobs. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a lifetime movie, but it has that feel. It has the, the, um, you know cut to the most important day of his life and we're really mm. on the nose about it you know mm. you know i have cancer oh no you know it's like that oh um, wow and um it, as it's, opposed to the, the a, other one where as, it was like every release day that's, that's what right they did. And, it, and they they didn't you know it it was aaron sorkin wrote it and uh it's, it's i like very that much movie. that no it, it, it's another it's, movie that has great dialogue it, it's not as good yeah. as this movie but no. it, it's it has great scenes in it um so anyway, that's that's where I'm at with it. So I, I'm a big fan of this movie. Um, and it's mostly because I just think almost every scene is rewatchable for me. Like every scene when I'm like, eh, I know that, oh, man, wow. Oh, wow. What are they doing here? This is incredible. Like this, the scene work is so incredible um, that I could literally watch any scene in this movie pretty much and be amazed by it. You know, so that's where I am with this this particular movie. I think we should inform the listeners about our our lists because oh, yeah. i think it matters yeah, like please. why why we pick I'll like, let, that, it was your idea jimmy so you explain yeah, please so i i thought it would be fun instead of uh just trying to like tap into the zeitgeist as far as what classics we were doing from from week to week that all three of us got to make like our top 10 list that for my for me personally my list is not my favorite 10, but it's 10 scripts I really, really want to talk about. And so each of us made a list, and this is the first episode we're doing off that list, and this is on Jamie's list, right? That's right. Yes. That's and it's right. also yeah. because we we assumed a movie was going to be released, and it wasn't, so then we <laughs> consult the lists, you know? Yeah, it's a good I, I think I believe it was me who said, hey, the metaverse just collapsed. Let's do social network. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was yeah, something my wife that happened. just told me that she heard that all the metaverse employees have to go back to the office, which is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> they can't just, do their jobs. No, from remote. <laughs> yeah. Also, don't forget the metaverse was created like 
as a cover up of Facebook's like ill dealings with some stuff. So it was like created in haste and then it failed completely. So this is our celebration of that. All right. Sure. It's a reason, you know, we all in the past, to be honest with the listeners, like Jimmy, you always try to find a reason why we're doing something, whether it be (laughs) a holiday or an anniversary. Yeah. yeah, Or if it's a new movie, it's a new movie. But yeah, like in this case, we kind of don't have a reason, but I'm saying the reason is that. (laughs) So I almost, I want to throw a quick audible if it's okay with you, Jimmy. Do you want to, is it possible to do your adapting true stories up front? Because I kind of, yeah, usually go into the, I, I meant to copy it there because yeah, um, that's okay. This, this movie, who wrote it just super quick. I'll give you the box office and who wrote it. Uh, we mentioned Aaron Sorkin, but it was based on a book. Uh, it was called the accidental billionaire. If I remember, uh, yes, the that's accidental a billionaire. terrible title, horrible title, right? <laughs> that's <a> horrible. <laughs> that sounds like a Disney movie from the 70s. It, it, it doesn't it, tell you anything about Facebook either. Like, no, it's, oh, it's, it's It's the accidental billionaires um, by Ben Plural. Mesrich. And if I remember correctly, and I didn't research this part, but if I remember correctly, Sorkin like got the galleys of it. He read the first chapter. He got the gist and he kind of riffed. He kind of just made it up like a lot of the what rest I, of it up. Jamie, yeah. what I read is that they sold the pitch okay. on a 14-page, like the pitch for the movie, on, okay. based on a 14-page pitch doc for the that book that wasn't even it, written yet. That might be and what that I heard. Fincher yeah. was literally on his ass the same way that HBO was on what's-his-name's uh, uh, tale for Game of Thrones. Like, get the pages done so we can make the movie. Like, you know, mm. I mean, not Sorkin, the writer of the book. We need your book so that we can adapt it into the movie. <laughs> right, right. So mm-hmm. that's what I read. So I don't know okay. if it's true, but. Okay. Oh, Are you, all I remember I, I is, I, what I remember is that Sorkin didn't really have the book when he wrote the movie. He yes, had, yes. You know, just so I, I actually don't know much about this. Like, is this movie considered because of that? Because of what you just said, is this movie considered inaccurate? Very, very there inaccurate. There are inaccuracies, or? but that's that was deliberate. They that were, was deliberate. Okay, they were the inaccuracies of the movie were your classic. Jamie, did you want to kind of lead in, and I'll bounce off of you as far as because you have experience writing biopics. So, yeah, yeah, for we, sure, for yeah. sure. Um, and so this movie box office, by the way, made we always talk about that did make two hundred and twenty four million dollars at the box office for a talkie um, movie. That's really whoa. good. Oh, yeah, and, and, and the budget. Shit. The budget was low, all things considered. It was $40 million. So, you know, it was a big, you know, made a lot of money. I can't remember if this one won awards or not. Um, it got, I think it won Oscars. I'm not sure which one. Shame you, on us. I, it definitely got nominated for play. Oscars galore. Yeah, I didn't look. I didn't yeah. look again. Yeah. I, That's I okay. I forgot this one. But um, um. so, yeah, I've, I've adapted things in the past like this and you you have to make big choices usually you have to figure out like what your in is you have to find the theme you have to find the plot you you know all these things one of the big takes that you have to find is kind of like the character arc what's the theme usually when you crack that you can kind of crack the rest you can kind of crack the scope and i think sorkin latched on to this Oh, here's a guy who created the greatest social network, and all he wanted was a friend or a connection. You know, he wanted to make a connection. He wanted to make a friend. He wanted to have have somebody to love, but he didn't know how. 
And he ended up building this whole thing kind of as his want when his need was this other thing, like a personal connection. Like mm -hmm. instead he went about this, this wild way of doing it as a, you know, which started out almost like a revenge thing. Um, after he he broke up with the with the girl and then all the stuff that came after it so that was that seemed to be his in um and then you have to figure out like well how much story do you tell if everybody already knows that he wins then what's the story um and courtroom cases are a great way to kind of frame things i think we talk about framing devices later but we can kind of mix that in here yeah and he's um, yeah, yeah. done that him he's done that to great effect before with the few good men so yes. yeah that's it, his wheelhouse <laughs> and, and and just recently he made that uh this what was it the yeah. chicago 12 the or chicago, whatever yeah yeah, yeah. 10 7 uh, i think 7, seven. chicago Some 7 number yeah uh, also, yeah, before you, before you keep going, it did win uh, best adapted screenplay. I thought won so. best screenplay, and it also score. won film editing and original score. So okay. those are the so three. So it's no wonder yeah. that it's your favorite movie from the post two thousands, Jamie. Yeah, yeah, it's two thousands um, and beyond. So, so these are these are some of the you know adaptation questions you need to ask. But then also, you have to kind of bring it in line. Like once you come up with your through line. Once you come up with kind of your hero goal obstacle stakes, then you start manipulating reality often mm -hmm. to make it work. And it really becomes, at least for me, when I do these kind of projects, I love to keep as much truth as possible. But sometimes you have to reorganize timelines. You mm -hmm. have to kind of skip over timelines. And maybe you have to fudge, like maybe you see like a big event but you fudged like the motivations, you fudged like mm -hmm. the conflicts, you fudge some of the things that go into it that nobody really knows. So you have to kind of make that stuff up, but you kind of do it based on your take on the story. Like you have exactly. an idea of the story and you start, you start manipulating things to land like a story as opposed to a bunch of random events. That's, it's that's like, was, it's like, if you're going doing this, uh, Jamie, is it more, is it more to make a great movie or to make a great uh i don't know account <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> what's what's the more important thing or is it just like a balance on a razor's edge mm -hmm. yeah i think i think there's a little bit of both i i think when i do it it's kind of like a whiteboard exercise where i put up all the greatest hits and i try to keep those and then i feel free to connect the dots and that's where i come in and and, and it isn't the 100% great account, but I want to tell you all the highlights of the story. I want right, to, yeah. I want to hit all those big spots and I, tr I do everything. They're like my darlings. And I hardly ever, when I do a biopic, me personally, I, this is the one place where I try not to, to like cut my darlings. Cause I think that's like important. I want people to that's go the out. the reason people come to see it. Yeah. 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 So, so I would rather fudge things and make it work then get rid of my darlings or something it's like kind of like the jobs movie right like the, that movie is just when he's launching products there's no other days in that movie so <laughs> right. i cut it down to just those moments that you just would care about him. right except his best moments except, right except that's what's interesting about that movie i'm sure there's a whole bunch of things that he said and did that didn't happen during those things <laughs> right. that yeah. he has to then put in those things like the big right. Like, for example, there, that movie has a big fight with Wozniak. That's this great scene. I don't, I don't know if that scene ever really happened or happened in that way. Maybe it did. I don't know. 
But my gut says it didn't. But my gut says there's truth in th that moment probably did happen in a way, whether it was emails yeah. or something like that. So they were expressing two opinions, but he put him in the same room and did things like that. So he's expressing reality through fiction is, That's, is what I think. Uh, man, you, everything that you just said is exactly what I was hoping to discuss when I put it on the talking point. So the reason that I brought it up is because I have consulted on a great many um, based on a true story, right? And, and, and what I find time and time again in amateur scripts, people who are just learning the craft, right? This is like maybe their second script and they want to do based on a true story is they are so rigid with the facts and the history that they are unwilling to compromise the facts to for the benefit of the story right and that's like my my belief is that it's not history it's it's a movie so it, you can uh, jamie the greatest hits and everything that you just said it's like if it rings true even if it didn't happen the, exactly that way that's all that matters does it ring true within the story that you're telling that's like a good litmus test so i wanted to bring up a few fact versus fiction uh to show how they they the problem solving because my favorite thing about this movie what i appreciate the most about this and biopics in general is everything you just discussed jamie like the problem solving of how to tell this true story in a way that's like emotionally impactful right so I, I, I don't want to go too long because we have some other fun stuff on the horizon here. But um, first, let's talk about Eduardo's role in reality. So, you know, the movie painted him as the victim and they went through like he invested $1,000 and he invested uh, an extra 18000 to get that house. And basically, according to the movie all of the money was Eduardo's and, and it was all because of him that they were able to do this in the first place. In reality, he did invest a thousand dollars, but they ran out of that money and he was unable to get more investors in New York while they were still expanding the company. And Mark Zuckerberg's family had to take out a loan and basically save the company. And then while that happened, Eduardo then started his own company and uh, illegally and without permission started running ads on Facebook for that company. And that's what caused the big riff because Eduardo put, started his own company. After, so much less cinematic. Yeah, it's, it's, that's yeah. right. But, you know, so they took pieces of the reality and they decided like, well, this will make a better story, right? Like imagine like that's, that's a prime example. Okay. The second one, uh, Sharn, and, and, this is like my friend. It's a good example. It's a good example. Of, like, they leave in all of his like ad stuff. Like he, they left that the truth of him wanting ads on exactly, Facebook. Exactly, it's true. Yeah, but yeah. It Jamie, does, what it were you going to say? Yeah, the model that the, the truth of it doesn't really fit Sorkin's, you know, friendship, uh, betrayal of a friend, all that stuff. Because honestly, it sounds like that guy should have been like shown the door. You know what Axed. I mean? Based on what you just said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So okay, another one. Uh, there was no one million user event or frat house party, but Sean Parker was arrested, like the film portrays, for drug use with underage teens at a party. But that happened at a completely different time, in a completely different state, 
So it's again, like Jamie said, like it's a greatest hits of the story, right? But how you problem solve, like how do we take that very uh, memorable and impactful moment in the history of this story and rework it in a way that rings true and fits, like you said, Jamie, Aaron Sorkin's telling of this tale. Right. It also adds to the mystique of Mark Zuckerberg because he wasn't there in the movie. It (laughs) makes remember how it's like the accusation of wait, you weren't there for a reason, and then it doesn't say yes or no. It It leaves it for the audience. Yeah. Yeah, That that there's a setup or something. He did that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that's like completely different. But he did, he did get arrested for all the same reasons that the movie has him arrested. It did lead to his firing for Facebook, even though he still owned on the books a percentage of it. Um, so there's a lot of truth in it, right? But they adjusted it to fit the story. So this is my favorite one. Cause I think this is, this sort of validates for me the argument that you should be take, be willing to take major creative liberties for the sake of the story. There is no Erica character in reality. The girl, the girlfriend from the opening scene that we're going to play out, uh, she does not exist in reality. Mark Zuckerberg was dating Priscilla Chan the entire time he was at Harvard. They got married. They're still married and they had a kid and they, and they're still together and with a family. Right. So like this portrayal of him or is this lonely guy who, you know, destroys, sociopath. Yeah, yeah. Who destroys all of his relationships, you know, and leaves the story, leaves the, you know, leaves the million, the million user story with no one and the story itself with not a friend in the world. That's a major falsity, right? That's not true (laughs) at at all. (laughs) So, but if you take that away, if you have give him a relationship, um, like a romantic relationship for the duration of the story, it doesn't have the impact that, That he needs to be alone. Does. He needs to be alone. He needs to be that asshole at the opening. And I'm not trying to defend him and say, who knows what he's like in real life. What I'm saying is he was in a relationship with a woman while he was at Harvard. And that relationship is still, ha- he's still married. He's married her today, you know, decades later. So. No, the movie paints a very different <laughs> picture of that man. Yeah. But I don't, yeah. like you said, I don't know Mark Zuckerberg. Don't know Mark Zuckerberg. But the but movie so, is not flattering but, to him but I, at but all. I, no, but I think if you're out there and you have, you want to tell a movie that's quote unquote based on a true story, you have to be willing to take creative liberties with with this with the history in order to tell the best version of the story. So yeah, cool. I like your audibles, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we moved that. That was at the bottom. We moved it up to the top. So yeah. now we're at page count. Yeah. Jamie, yeah, do you right? want to take this? This was yours. Yeah. Yours. The only thing I wanted to say about this, because it's something I bring up in a lot of my classes, is, you know, there's this whole notion of one page equals one minute in uh, in, in screen time. So for every one page of, of, you know, final draft or PDF or screenplay, you are portraying one minute of screen time. And it's a very important rule. And it's an important rule for new screenwriters to get used to. So they mm-hmm. don't just write a car chase and the car chase is three minutes and they just wrote a car chase or they, I, I get that all the time where it's like, they want a car chase to be five minutes long and they write it in a paragraph. And it's like, no, you gotta fill the pages. You gotta fill the five pages. Um, 
This one, there's an anecdote from uh, Sorkin who talks about when he first delivered the screenplay, I think it was 160 odd pages long, like his original draft. And it still is. <laughs> it still is. Yeah. And um, and the he was contractually obligated to deliver a two hour movie. So Fincher got it. And Sorkin said, well, Sorkin was like, it's two hours long. And he's like, you're just supposed to speak really fast. So Fincher, uh, he, Sorkin said, uh, they basically all agreed that Sorkin could read it out loud. And if it came in under two hours, it would be okay. And he did that and it came in under two hours. And, th <laughs> and th so they approved the, the 160 page draft. Um, so I'm not sure that there's an instructional point about that. I, I thought it was a good spot to mention. First of all, do pay attention that if if you need to have a car chase that's five minutes long, fill the five pages, uh, fill the five pages. And also, if you have a script that's 160 pages long, don't pull the Sorkin trick. People do pay attention to that. And you probably <laughs> won't get a chance to read it out loud and prove it's two hours long. But, you know, but on the flip side of all that, yeah, we know it's not an exact science, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not. Yeah, right. It, it kinda, have you have you have you read the script and and uh does the rowing scene written out like it is in the movie i you know the rowing scene with that part with the winkle winkle voss rowing scene i i have like that would be the car chase of the movie kind of right yeah 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 back I, and forth you mean of between them and everything right like yeah. is that Instead written out one sentence summary here's, or is that david fincher right here's here's my gut my gut says because i've read sorkin scripts like that before and I, I have the script. The script's out there. You can you can take a look. And I could open it up now, but I won't waste our time. When I've read, I've read a bunch of past Sorkin scripts, some made, some not made. And I get the feeling he doesn't really care about action at all. Like, so my gut says that rowing thing is like, yeah, they have a rowing thing and it's done. And Winkle bosses lose. Yeah. And he can get away with that to an extent because he's not writing spec scripts and he's got mm -hmm. Fincher on board and stuff like that. But uh, I don't know. In the past, when I've read Sorkin scripts, he just, he, that is not something he is interested in is, gotcha. is the cinematics. He, he is almost writing. He writes a lot of his screenplays like they're plays to an extent. Right. I only ask because that's a whole scene without dialogue. It's literally breathing and rowing. and <laughs> Nobody says anything until, you know, the eventual result. So um, Sorkin dialogue. This, yes. is, this is a new thing we're going to try, right? Yes. This is going to be fun. Yeah. This is Jamie, too, right? Uh, both of us yeah, both this, of you guys this yeah, is yeah. everybody this, this is, is all yeah, three everyone group activity so we're gonna what we're gonna do is <laughs> we're gonna analyze the first scene so this first scene is like seven it's seven minutes i think in the actual movie uh mm -hmm. of just pure dialogue like a play between two characters so we're gonna um we're gonna break that thing down and turn it every which way and how i how i wanted to start is to read a version almost like the bad version this this version is is almost like the ones maybe i would write on my first draft but definitely my students write on their first draft and they hand in just to kind of give an example of why this scene is so special there's a first draft version of it that's not so special that i see more <laughs> often than not and then we can kind of go back and and read through the real version 
and kind of figure out like what the magic tricks are that what make it magic so tricks. special. So with that, um, Bob and Jimmy are going to be our Mark and Erica. <laughs> and this is, this is my PDF that I sent you guys. OTN underscore version. Okay. So I'm, I'm Mark Zuckerberg. You're Erica. I'm Erica. We're not, I've done voice acting, but we're just no, both not yeah, actors. I'm Let's not just say that out loud. Do voice acting. Yeah, right, right, right. I, I think yeah, both, of you, both of you should act, but you don't have to necessarily put on an Erica voice or Mark. <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to put. Don't, don't do that, Jimmy. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. If, this if, is the bad version if, that J- Jamie has written. And in case you don't remember, to set the scene, the movie fades in on a. They're they're at a pub and they're just sitting across from each other. It's Mark and Erica on a date. Okay. Okay. Everyone at Harvard got 1600 on SATs. I need to distinguish myself. You could play a sport or sing or something. I can't do that. I want to join a finals club. Why? It's about exclusivity. Which one are you considering? The Phoenix is a good one. Teddy Roosevelt was in the porcelain. (laughs) You should pick the easiest one to get into. That's insulting. Why wouldn't you think I could get into any of them? I was just asking. You're obsessed with finals clubs. I'm not obsessed. I'm motivated. You should be more supported. Supportive. If I get in, I can get into great parties you wouldn't normally get into. What? I can't take this. I'm leaving. What? Why? Because I'm insulted. Why? The reason you drink here is because you slept with the door guy. No, I didn't. The door guy is my friend. I'm breaking up with you. Wait, don't. Let's talk. I'm wasting my time with you. I should be studying. You don't have to study. You go to BU. You're an asshole. Okay. It's like we're AI. It's like we're written by AI. <laughs> no, that's exactly what it sounds like when you have final draft read your script, by the yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, I always say to my students who write like this, and most of them do, by the way, like, and, and it's very weird. Like, this is one of those things that is hard to teach. Like, yeah, I think some people are just born with coming in, not doing mm-hmm. what you just did, because I'll, I get scripts like this all the time. That is exactly, it's people saying things that is exactly on their character's mind. They're just, mm-hmm. they're just saying exactly what's on their mind. And there's no characterization at all in any of it. There's no, <laughs> yeah. there's no anxieties. There's no sense of humor. There's no, there's nothing. It's just, just transformers talking to each it's, other. It's like <laughs> two robots talking to each other that have been programmed to talk to each other. But, and by the way, if you run chat GPT, it does give you dialogue like this quite often yeah. it, it's not yeah. it's not for yet, now for now it's not yet good at clever or jokes or subtext so one of the things that is will differentiate us for the robots for, for a little while i think is this um so that's what this is this is you might have heard of on the nose dialogue i took the real dialogue and i just wrote what the subtext was that's what i did instead yeah. of and you know so they're speaking with subtext we'll, we'll listen to that in a second this is the version that is just what is on their mind. And I can't tell you how many times my students write exactly like this. And I'd say 80% of my students write like this, maybe 85 or 90. And I, I explain it to them. I tell them, okay, now write it without saying it. I do all the things. It's still very, very hard to learn because it, it's, it's almost, there is a bit of magic. I know when I do it, there's a certain... I don't know what to say. There's a certain energy flowing through me 
where I'm channeling characters, where I'm, where, where I have a little bit of a buzz, where there's an adrenaline going through me. There might be music playing in the background. There might be something. I might be in my car just channeling these characters, but you do have to get them kind of in your blood to do it. However, we're going to go through the actual scene and see if there are things that we can pull from Sorkin's actual writing that can help us, that could give us can open new doors to like how we think about writing this kind of dialogue and see what, what kind of things he's doing. Now, I should say Sorkin has talked about how he writes dialogue. What he does is he he's a he's somebody that finds knowing what a character wants in a scene is very important knowing and and then what he does is he walks around so first he figures that out what's what's the motivation in the scene what's their want and he walks around talks to himself that's how he writes these scenes and that's why a lot of sorkin's characters sound like sorkin and a lot of them sound like each other in some ways like yeah. like you get and that is a knock on him that you can have five characters that all kind of talk very similar. Um, the weird thing about Sorkin also, and you can find this on YouTube, he'll repeat like funny phrases, like I'll turn that into my ping pong room and stuff like that. And you'll, <laughs> it'll be in West Wing. It'll be in Steve Jobs. Um, <laughs> like he has, he has certain quotes that he says like, um, and that's Shakespeare the way it's meant to be played. And, you know, and he, he repeats himself because he, he really does talk to himself when he writes his dialogue. And it's just just like all of us. He kind of repeats himself all the time with little phrases. So, so anyway, with that. So, yeah. Yeah. So what I did was so, you know, it's very similar to the rooting influencer technique breakdowns that we've done in the past mm -hmm. and also the um the the types of tension i feel like jamie if we did another version of this the types of tension exercise that you have like the eight types of tension the mm -hmm. big ones that there's a version of this where we just did the types of tension and then it's also like the um like the good news, bad news, you know, it's like all of those things and the types of jokes. Remember on the comedy episodes, we did the 11 types of jokes. So I have, a. there's some really great books out there that have their own versions of those 11 types of, of lines, right? This types of dialogue. Um, McKee has one. I haven't read it yet. Um, uh, Pilar Alessandra, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, her book, The Coffee Break Screenwriter, she has an entire chapter on dialogue that includes dialogue techniques, and they're fantastic. Um, Blake Snyder in his Save the Cat blogs book, there's a whole chapter on that that has Blake's own techniques. I chose a book that we have. I've never brought up, 99 episodes. I thought it was a good time to bring up. It's one of my favorite books on the craft. It's called Writing for Emotional Impact by Carl Iglesias. Um, and he's another one of those guys like William Martell, like in the, in the late nineties, I was going to his seminars and they were like the best craft lessons that I had ever learned. And I'm still using them to this day. So he has an entire how to, he has an entire chapter on the tricks, Jamie, where he codifies the tricks. Um, and so what I thought we could do is, we could read the the dialogue and then stop and and label the tricks, right? And I think it's it's going to be really instructive. And I found there's more than twenty examples that we're going to stop, but I found twenty different techniques in the first nine pages. Twenty, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about them. And these are these are the tricks. 
So Jamie, I didn't um, focus on like exposition or like character revelation and voice, those mm -hmm. types of things. So if you have any of that that you want to include, like stop me, shut me up. Yeah, know? yeah. No, I, I have a bunch of little things that I'll throw in as well, but okay. um, let's let's do it. Bob, you and have not, that PDF that I gave yep. you? Okay, we're not cool. reading stage direction or anything, no, right? Stage just, just characters, right? Yeah. Okay. Do you know there are more people with genius IQs living in China than there are people of any kind living in the United States? So right off the bat, this is a technique that uh, Carl Iglesias calls exaggeration, where a character throws out some extreme exaggeration that makes the what he's saying like memorable and different than we would expect it to be said. So exaggeration. Right. Uh, that can't be true. It is true. So this is one, and you'll see this come up a lot. This is one that Carl Iglesias calls word repetition. Basically where the one character says something and then the next character echoes it using the same words. So that one's word repetition. What would account for that? Well, first of all, a lot of people live in China, but here's my question. How do you, sorry, how do you distinguish yourself in a population of people who all got 1600 on their SATs? I didn't know they take SATs in China. I wasn't talking about China anymore. I was talking about here. So there's two techniques here. So Carl Iglesias says that when a character changes the subject, it creates tension and curiosity and expectation in the audience since all of a sudden we're talking about something different. So it makes it interesting. And then the second one is whenever a character has a completely unexpected response, it also throws us as the audience off balance. And we go, oh, I didn't expect that. The character didn't expect that to be said. And we as the audience didn't expect that to be said. You got 1600? You can sing in an acapella group? So uh, this one is called the comeback singer. <laughs> And basically, it's it's self-explanatory, a quick, scathing, or witty response, and it should always be more interesting than the previous line. So, right. <laughs> does Wait, that mean that? Go but, ahead, Bob. No, go ahead, is, is the acapella group though? I for some reason I thought he was still on a different track. Like he was, he was saying you could sing in an acapella group, you can row crew, you can do that. I think that's what he's doing, and that. So you part. don't think it's a knock? You don't think it's a zinger? You think he's actually like being yeah. thoughtful there? Yeah, because what I think he's doing now, he's going to start riffing on how you can distinguish yourself. And yeah. um, what's interesting here that's about to happen. This is something early Spielberg did that I try to emulate all the time, and it's kind of tricky, where he has two different people talking on completely different yep. threads at the same Love time. That. And uh, Sorkin does that a lot. And, and then Sorkin merges it, and they get confused at each other, and they, you know, they're like, what do you mean acapella group? Oh, I was talking about you. You know, they'll kind of back and forth it. So I for watch reason, uh, watch any episode of Seinfeld. They literally do this mm -hmm. almost every episode. Yeah, yeah two like, competing conversations that merge into one. Yeah, this book has a ton of Seinfeld we, examples. Yeah, we we may do Jaws in the near future, and if we do, there's like there's like an early scene where he's on the phone, his wife's talking, and they have this back and forth. Yes, yeah, they do a very. And ever since I saw that, because they do the same thing in Close Encounters, they do it in a whole bunch of other movies, um, even though different writers, but Spielberg movies have a lot of this in the early uh, 80s and late 70s. Yeah, he calls I, this pro parallel threads. I didn't list it. So okay. 
at yeah. technique number 21 then yeah. in this one scene. It's, it's rampant in social network. They do it all the time. They do it all the time. I was going to say to to also agree with Jamie, like Mark's next line here, it kind of goes with what you were saying. Like he's telling her how to yeah. better blend in. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? I think it's a parallel threads thing that's about to happen. That's good. Okay. Uh, does that mean that you actually got nothing wrong? Or you could row crew or you invent a $25 PC. Or you get into a final club. Or you get into a final club. Exactly. Word repetition again, echoing the same word. Also note here that there's exposition in play, right? We know that Mark got a perfect score in his SAT. It's sneaky exposition. Sneaky. Yes. Um, I like guys who row crew. Well, I can't do that. And yes, it means I got nothing wrong on the test. Have you ever tried? I'm trying now. And there's, again, that word repetition, right? right. Echoing the same word. So that's the third time he's used it already. Um, to row crew? To get into the final club. To row crew? No. Are you, like, whatever, crazy? I, I labeled this an unexpected re- response. Like, she's not expecting him to say that. And we as an audience are now thrown a little off balance. And there's tension there. Um, sometimes, Mark, seriously, you say two things at once. And I'm not sure which one you're talking about. But you've seen guys who row crew, right? No. And I would count that as an unexpected response because the way that he communicates it, he's totally expecting her to say yes. And she says no, so that there's some tension there. Right. Okay, well, they're bigger than me. They're world-class athletes. And a second ago, you said you like guys who row crew, so I assumed you met one. I guess I meant I like the idea of it, the way a girl likes cowboys. I'd call this one a metaphor simile. He, He, you know, this is another technique, like using a metaphor or a simile to to make the line fresh. Also, I'd, I'd add that the thing I, as Mark, the thing I just said, sets up the Winklevoss twins and how he feels about guys like that. That's exposition, why, yeah. And why screwing them over would be his first instinct. Yes, that's he's, great. Yeah. Sneaky. Okay. Yeah, More right? sneaky. <laughs> the Phoenix is good. This is a new topic. It's the same topic. <laughs> so, uh, once again, that word repetition echoing. So that's the fourth time he's used that. We're still talking about the finals clubs. Would you rather talk about something else? So this is one of my favorites. I think it's the easiest one to do, and it's question with a question. If you are writing a scene and uh, it's feeling like it's bland, the easiest thing you can do right away is tweak it so that you have question followed with a question. Because that changes the the rhythm. Uh, no, it's just that since the beginning of the conversation about finals clubs, I think I may have had a birthday. <laughs> There's something there. I don't know what that is. <laughs> we can we can change the subject. Uh, there are more people in China with genius IQs than the entire population. Um, I, there's two techniques here. It's a it's it, there's a technique that's a setup and payoff within a conversation. And so this is kind of like that premise pretzel idea, Jamie, but in dialogue, like a payoff, and then it could come back later and pay off again, right? And the second one is, once again, we get a subject change. So when a character changes the subject mid-conversation, once again, it throws us as listeners off balance. It's interesting. There's tension. Why is she changing the subject? How's he going to respond to her changing the subject once again? So It's about exclusivity. And there again, he changed the subject back. <laughs> Right. Um, God, what is it? 
The final clubs, and that's how you distinguish yourself. The Phoenix is the most diverse. The Fly Club, Roosevelt, Punch the Pork. So this one, uh, Carl Iglesias calls listing. He calls it listing. One, two, three. And he, in his book, he he put like three different Seinfeld episodes. Like Elaine does this all the time. George does this all the time. Jerry does this all the time. So apparently the writers of Seinfeld likes to use, like to use listing a lot. Um, yeah. uh, which one? The porcelain, the pork. It's the best one of the best. It's the best of the best. I actually meant Roosevelt, which Roosevelt. So that's an unexpected response. Theodore. Okay, well, which is the easiest one to get into? And we're not talking stage direction here, but there's a pause here. Mark takes a cigarette from a pack that doesn't happen in the movie, but in the script, lights it, takes a drag, and blows the smoke out before he says. So that's hmm. a silence. So, yeah. so another one of Carl Iglesias' techniques is pregnant pauses, silence. That creates tension. That makes dialogue scenes. That's another one of those tricks. Makes makes uh makes the scene more interesting. You said whom, Bob? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. What? Why would you ask me that? Again, question followed by another question. I was just asking. They're all hard to get into. My friend Eduardo made three hundred thousand betting on oil futures last summer, and he won't get in. Money or the ability to make it doesn't impress anybody around here. Everybody can do that. And again, sneaky exposition in this section. As we well. ha Eduardo has money. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, mm, mm, it's great. Yeah. He made $300,000 in a summer. He likes meteorology. So this is one that um, he instead of unexpected, Carl Iglesias labels this trick as inappropriate response out of place response. So all of a sudden we're talking about meteorology <laughs> like that is completely out of place in 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 the topic of conversation right now so it's not just unexpected well, we it's think completely, it is we think it is right and yeah. that's that reversal right then we get a reversal right. so uh out of place response uh he said it was oil futures you said it was oil futures if you can predict the weather, you can predict the price of heating oil. You asked me that because you think the final club that's e easiest to get into is the one where I'll have the best chance. I've lost my place again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like she's responding to the conversation. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's that parallel threads, right, Jamie? It's like a reminder mm -hmm. that they're on two different parallel threads right there. So you asked me which one was the easiest to get into because you think that's where I have the best chance. The one that's the easiest to get into would be the one where anybody had the best chance. I just think you asked the placement of where you asked the question. I was honestly just asking, okay? I was just asking to ask. Mark, I'm not speaking code. So there's two things there. I actually didn't label this on the on the page I gave you guys. But number one, there's an interruption. And so Carl Glacius, that's one of Carl Glacius' mm -hmm. tricks. Interrupting creates tension and and throws us and the characters off balance and two there's another metaphor right like or that's another simile or metaphor uh technique i'm not speaking in code <laughs> um okay uh erica uh you're obsessed with the finals clubs you have finals clubs ocd and you need to see someone about this who will prescribe some sort of medication you don't care if the side effects may include blindness you just do it um so that isn't that is a technique that um uh, he calls comic comparison right so she's comparing his she's comparing it to an illness right comedically final clubs not finals clubs and there's a difference between being obsessed and being motivated 
So this is, this is another technique he just simply labels corrections. When one character corrects another character in the dialogue, that once again throws the, the, the other character off balance, throws us at the audience off balance, and creates tension. Yes, there is. And it's, it's interesting, like this section, when go, thinking back to my on-the-nose version, uh, you know, there's a difference between being obsessed and being motivated. And then when she says, yes, there is, what's the subtext of that? It's like, you're obsessed. You know, yeah. That, yeah. that's yeah. really right. the sub Exactly. Subtext. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And the, so the bad version would just be that. Yep. Just be, you're obsessed. Yeah. Well, you do. That was cryptic. So you do speak in code. I didn't mean to be cryptic. So there's two techniques there. There's that word repetition again. And then he's paying off that earlier line about I'm not speaking in code. You know, so it's that idea of like you can take a line, plant it earlier and then revisit it later for like for almost like either to be shitty or to be comedic. Um, I'm saying I need to do something substantial in order to get the attention of the clubs. Why? Because they're exclusive. And fun. They lead to a better life. So this is one in the in the script. It's in italics, which it's the first line in the whole dialogue scene. It's in italics. And, you know, there's some people put an underline. Jamie, do you use underline caps or italics? I use all of the above for different so do I. <laughs> Yeah, it just depends on what I, what I feel, you know. So so this is this is a technique as as simple as he calls it visceral and emotionally charged dialogue. So when, when something is extra visceral and emotionally charged, then all of a sudden it becomes more interesting. And this is the first truly emotionally charged moment in the script. And it comes from Mark, who is like, you know, not emotional, trying to not be emotional. So that's interesting. Um, you think Teddy Roosevelt got elected president because he was a member of the Phoenix Club? He was a member of the Porcelain, and yes, I do. Again, there's a correction. So correction creates tension. Maybe he sang in an acapella group. And that's a there's two techniques. It's a zinger. And it is a, a once callback. again, it's a payoff. It's a callback. Yeah. I want to be straightforward and tell you that I think you should be a lot more supportive. If I get in, I'll be taking you to the parties and you'll be meeting people that you wouldn't normally get to meet. He <laughs> would do that for me. <laughs> You're my girlfriend. So yeah, There's sorry. our first. It's okay. There's our first sarcasm in the whole script. So it took right. six pages of dialogue to get to a sarcastic line. I see this one kind of used the most. Jamie, do you see this a lot with your students? People yeah, being yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This is sort of like the easiest one. <laughs> it's the one I see the most, and it's good. Like I'm, I'm fine with that. But it's like that thing that I, I like. I read a lot of scripts where people are really good at one thing and they just sort of wield that one magic trick over and over. They do the same card trick over and over. So after the third time, it just becomes not special. So like sarcasm is good if it happens every once, once every six pages, right? Not once every, every page. Um, and You're my you, girlfriend. Okay. Well, I want to be straightforward and tell you I'm not anymore. So there's two techniques. Earlier, he said, I want to be straightforward and tell you that blah, blah, blah. So she is repeating that. You know, that's the word repetition again. I, this starts to also go with Jamie's thing earlier about how everyone has the same voice. Mm -hmm. Like she kind of does sound like Mark, mm -hmm. right? 
Like she mm-hmm. sounds like him responding to himself almost. She does, but the way it's almost like like that's the only way to get through to him, you know? Like, right. She's on the defensive. I, on I'm the not defense. saying it's completely yeah. the same, but there yeah. is a voice there. Yeah. And the second time and the second technique is if that's an unexpected response. Like he wasn't expecting that. Maybe we were at this point, but he wasn't expecting it. So it creates tension. He's not respecting pushback. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's a good technique. What do you mean? I'm not your girlfriend anymore. Is this a joke? No, I'm sorry. It's not. You're breaking up with me? You're going to introduce me to people I wouldn't normally meet? What the fuck is that supposed to mean? Take it easy. So that's a visceral, emotional. That's her first true visceral, emotionally charged line. And that extra oomph makes it interesting, makes it fresh, keeps us as the audience off balance. What was what is that supposed to mean? It was Erica. The reason we're able to sit here and drink is that you used to sleep with a door guy. So there's two techniques here. Both I haven't mentioned before. So one uh, Carl Iglesias calls button pushing. This is a push button, right? He's pushing her buttons. There's some there's some implication that she she might be like, you know, have some emotional issues with like sleeping around being accused of sleeping around there's some implication there and also um there's some implication of her social status not being good enough you know again that's pushing the button she just he just pushed before um and then this is a technique he calls drawing attention to someone or something he used a great example in the book from the silence of the lambs uh clarice is doing an autopsy on one of the victims and it's silent and all of a sudden, before she even see, we see what she's talking about, she says, there's something in her throat. And so drawing attention to something in the dialogue creates tension and, and, and curiosity and keeps us off balance and makes the scene fresh. So uh, I want to really try not to lose it now. The door guy's name is Bobby. I haven't slept with the door guy. The door guy's a friend of mine. So that's listing. First of all, second of all, third of all, right? That's that Seinfeld thing I mentioned before. That's right, another right. listing. He's perfectly good. He's a perfectly good class of people. And what part of Long Island are you from? England? I'm not sure what that is. What is that? There's that's something. What 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 part of Long Island are you from? England? That's a that's a sump technique right there. Well, that's her going on the offensive. Okay. Yeah, she's she's I don't know what the technique is, but she's yeah. trying to insult him. You're right. Right. I'm from Westchester. I'm going back to my dorm. Wait, wait, is this real? Yes. I apologize. Okay, sit down. I'm going back to my dorm. I have to study. Erica. Yeah. I'm sorry, and I mean it. I appreciate that, but come on. So there's another, there's an interruption. I have to study. You don't have to study. Let's just talk. I can't. Why? Because it's exhausting. Going out with you is like dating a Stairmaster. So there's three techniques at play there. Comic compa- a comedic comparison, a, like a metaphor or simile. And then that's another one that's like visceral and emotionally charged, right? There's some extra oomph there, and especially in the, in the delivery. So, All I meant is that you go to BU, and so you're not likely to. I wasn't making a comment on your parents. I was saying you go to BU. That's a push button, right? There's some power play right. there, pushing her yeah. buttons. I have to go study. You don't have to study. Again, the word repetition echoing the same word that she just said. 
how do you know I don't have to study? Because you go to BU. So both of these lines in the script are italicized. So there's, again, if, you, if this were just on a reader's desk, we as the reader would, this would be communicated as visceral and emotionally charged, right? Um, Erica stares at him. There's another pregnant pause, silence. That's another technique. So we're seeing what left, right. And they're all different, right? Left, right. One technique, two techniques, three techniques. Um, okay. Do you want to get some food? There's a subject change, right? <laughs> Changing the subject keeps us off balance, keeps the characters off balance. I'm sorry you're not sufficiently impressed with my education. And I'm sorry I don't have a rowboat. There's that word repetition again, right? I'm sorry. I'm and I'm sorry. You know, and that, it's a callback. And it's a callback. Two things. Bam. I think we should just be friends. I don't need friends. There's that word repetition again. I was and being, that's <laughs> that's like subtext for the movie. That's the whole movie, right? The whole there. movie, yeah. <laughs> um, I was being polite. I had no intention of being friends with you. You're really leaving. Listen, you're going to be successful and rich. But you're going to go through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a tech geek. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true. It'll be because you're an asshole. So there's three techniques at play all on top of each other in this climactic moment. There's the visual, visceral, emotionally charged. There's a push button because he knows he's an asshole, right? <laughs> there's the push button. And then there's the comeback zinger at the end there. <laughs> right. Um. And then the last line in the scene is, and you're never getting into final club. That's another push right. button, right? <laughs> right. So there's 21 different techniques that we read. And you can kind of understand after listening to all that, like why it feels so interesting to watch, right? Like a, like if you're going like to make a boxing match, it's like a boxing match. And if you're going to make a nine page dialogue scene work, it better have we better be wielding all these different techniques. I, so. there, there's one other technique I, this movie uses a couple times that when I was writing my TV book, Save the Cat Rights for TV book, like right after I wrote it, I kind of kept seeing this trick come up on television shows. And I call it once upon a timing. Uh, and it's when characters tell a long story that's either thematic or somehow is is a way of it even in, in this case it's it's the scene that popped up to me because they even call it uh mark even says is this a parable uh at one point <laughs> but um he he talks about victoria's secret and how that started and how it was a right. guy who sold it for cheap and then jumped off a bridge and you know so it's kind of like a cautionary tale he's telling mm -hmm. him but if you have like I've, I kind of have tried to force myself to once upon a time, at least once every time in a script, because I think it is a different change up. And the trick to it is find things that are interesting, that do come up in your life, that somebody once told you that, that you would share in a bar or something like that. And if it's thematic or it relates to your scene, it may be an entertaining way. It might be a good change up for a dialogue scene. Um, don't overuse it. It's funny because then after I kind of started to see this in every TV show, at least once a show, <laughs> um, then I watched Midnight Mass. If you ever watched Midnight Mass, the Flanagan I've seen it, show. Yep. I haven't seen and it yet. That's great. That show has. It's all monologues. All monologues. It's, <laughs> it's all, all monologues. All the time. I mean, they're like six minute long, like, because sometimes they're about your past. You know, when I was a kid, I blah, blah, blah. Then other times it's like, have you ever heard the story of Victoria's Secret? Or, you know, something like that. So they. 
there's there's different ways to do it. But he he's aware that he's didn't he he's absolutely. made fun of the show himself for doing that. Like and, and, it's so prevalent. And the show is actually really interesting. But yeah, it's, no, it's great. It's just like Wald. I, I'm a big fan of the show, but it's it it has several of them per episode. Like it's it's literally and it's like, like a yeah. it's like a camera push on someone giving a monologue and you know what's happening. Like right. here we go. <laughs> right. Here Var- it is. Variety is the spice of life, including in dialogues. Yeah. Scenes. So um so it's another trick Sorkin uses later on in the episode in the uh, there's, movie. There's one trick that was in the Carl Iglesias book, one that uh didn't come up in this scene, but he used it a ton in the movie, and like one of my one of the most memorable lines for me in any Aaron Sorkin thing is during that you can't handle the truth uh, Mm -hmm. monologue in a few good men. And the technique is called yes, no alternatives. Someone says something and then asks a question. And then the answer is a new way to say yes or no. That's fresh. And so are we clear crystal, sir? (laughs) That's like, that's the great example. That's like, I remember, I remember that line so vividly. Are we clear, Crystal, sir? So that's a yes/no alternative, and that there's a ton of those in in the social network. Just not that's in that just like, scene. It's like that's just like new window dressing, but it works. Exactly, you know? it works so well. Yeah, yeah. Um, you want to talk about the framing device? Yeah. This whole movie is a framing yeah, device, just, right? Just super, super briefly, because um, framing devices are something that definitely help in these biopic, true story kind of things, mm-hmm. because and. The way he uses it here, and it's almost like a nonlinear thing he's he's doing, he can he can skip over chunks. And this is one of the things that maybe the the lifetime biopics don't have so much of. So lifetime biopics have to do this greatest hits thing where it's like uh I don't know, like, hey, we have a record album. Oh, I'm I I'm addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have cancer. Oh, I'm pregnant, you know, and it just skips and it, you, it's, it's so weird because it's so disjointed and they have to be very on the nose about it because they have to cover so much time. Yes. And I think the cool thing about this framing device is it allows you to do that. It's like, yeah. well, you know, well, well, tell me about this thing where they had a party and it's like cut to the party, you know, and, and it doesn't feel unnatural like those lifetime biopics where they're just two years later. I have cancer, you know, or whatever, or yeah. I'm, I'm pregnant or whatever the thing they have to do. They can, they can use this to bridge the gap because they're asking questions and, uh, and jumping around in time. And they could also fill in like some, some context. And Emotional some context. context. Yeah. 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 Jamie, it made me think of like, you've, you, you know, I know we touched upon this earlier in the episode about bio writing biopics, but you know, it's that, are you going to tell the one of the first decisions you have to make, like you said, is how much time is this covering? Are you going to tell a cradle to grave? Are you going to tell a slice of life? And if you're going to tell a slice of life, what slice is that? And I think what's interesting and fresh about this is we get two slices of life simultaneously. Right. We get the the framing device is a very specific slice of life. It, the why now is he's being sued twice like simultaneously in the middle of two lawsuits <laughs> that's a very specific why now right and why here um and then in the backstory we get a nice very contained it's basically tells the story 
the 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 slice of life in the in the past is the inception of Facebook to one million followers, one million users, and that's a nice really. You put that on the whiteboard, right? You're like, what am I gonna? How am I gonna tell this? And like you said, Jamie, and in Jobs, they did all the they did all of the really Launch, product yeah. launches. So you put that up on the board. That's a nice, easy to 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 handle. This one. You can you can tell they made the hard decision. Okay, we're gonna tell the story of the inception to the one million. Like that's a nice mon- monumental thing, and simultaneously the culmination of his relationship with with Eduardo and the and the climactic confrontation where he once and for all has no friends. That's right, <laughs> right. And and the tricky thing about these biopics is it's hard to figure out like the through line, like the like hero goal, obstacle and stakes, like what is his goal? And I guess it's to be successful, to be, you know, but his goal isn't to be the biggest company in the world to make a billion dollars. That happens later. Well, it's like an yeah. the movie, thing. It's the movie it's, frames it to be successful, but there's also that framing device of like with Erica, yes. like in this movie, I'm not saying yeah. real life, but in this movie, that is one of his like motivators Absolutely. is to get back at her. How, how do I distinguish myself as kind of the, the, the yeah. brand thing right. that is laid I out. I want to be remembered. But I'm going to destroy the rowboat people so that I prove I'm better than them so <laughs> she can understand who I am. Yeah. You know, like, but, like that's kind of what the movie it's, is. It's, <laughs> it, and that's sort of a want, but not a specific goal. Like it's, it yeah. doesn't have the photo finish we talk about sometimes. Yes. But when you reframe things, then you can kind of trick people because now it's like, will he win the lawsuit? Will he, yeah. was he, was he, did he steal the company? Didn't he steal the company? So it reframes it a little bit. So we're not as, mm-hmm. we, we feel the trajectory of the lawsuit bringing us to the end of the movie where, where maybe if you just told it like the lifetime version, you would kind of be like, well, why end here? You know, there's a whole nother chapter or there's something. A whole thing. There's a whole thing. But this at least puts a kind of a, a frame around it. It puts yeah. a frame around a particular yeah. thing. Also, I wanted to say, like you said, Jamie, about the emotional resonance of everything. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this story is it's about a guy who doesn't show much Mm-hmm. much personality at all but the framing device is where all the care where all the emotion actually lives mm-hmm. like the scenes with him in court with eduardo are where the movie's actual heart where and emotion live yeah. but the actual events are besides being written by aaron sorkin are really mechanical <laughs> you know what i mean like it, it all lives in the framing device yeah. and the mechanical nature of everything else is like it's only because it's written so well that it works <laughs> otherwise it would not it would not work my favorite thing, so like you put on here, Jamie, about the non-linear aspect of of it, mm-hmm. um, and I think what's instructive about this. So, um, if anyone likes this topic, we talked about this at length in the Pulp Fiction episode, um, and that is like the only reason that you should be writing something non-linearly is to your point, Bob, if it's the most emotionally satisfying way to tell the story. Like right. if you tell Pulp Fiction linearly, it's not as emotionally impactful a story. It's not as thematically resonant because it, it ends the way it ends and it's told, builds to what it's building to non-linearly. 
perfect example here would be the chicken story. It shows us the actual events of when he discovered the news article about the chicken story. And then it shows the emotion in the courtroom. Yes. How Ed- Eduardo is <laughs> searingly disturbed by the bringing it up. Yeah. You know what I mean? So and good. both of those juxtaposed to each other, it gives everything to that whole. Yeah. That's moment. like a micro version on the bigger thing. Like what one thing I think is really instructive is the framing device doesn't start until 22 pages. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what's great about that is we actually have a legit traditional before world act one setup where we see Mark's life and learn all his things that need fixing in a very conventional way before we flash forward to the present. You know, after Facebook, after all the events that we haven't seen yet unfold. So it's very instructive in that they do you tell a story non-linearly, but for the first 22 minutes, it's linear, you know, and that's like a that choice was very impactful. Like they were deliberate about that, you know, it so. feels really fresh, right? It makes the movie feel like it's not a flashback, mm-hmm. right? You know, when a movie feels like <laughs> you're just watching a flashback, it yes. doesn't feel like that in this movie. Yes. So, yeah. Another thing, um, I, the other thing I love about it, real quick, is the dual framing devices. That's really unique. Like we're actually seeing two framing devices simultaneously, and then I didn't even realize because I broke it down, but it didn't become necessary to our episode. But the the Winklevosses, am I saying that right? Yeah, their mm-hmm. deposition, the Winklevi <laughs> deposition, it ends on page seventy five. So it net, it's almost like t- at the midpoint, the first deposition takes center stage. We were going back and forth, and at page 75, it never comes back, which is very interesting. I didn't, I didn't notice that before, but I love the dual framing devices. I think it's very unique. And, and again, like instead of a courtroom, like he could have made this a court case, right? But he chose a deposition, and that makes it fresh. We don't... Uh, also I, more intimate. Yes, and I can't really yeah. think of... Yeah, like imagine this movie if like it feels like a divorce proceeding the whole movie, yes. but for not for love. Yes, yes, yes. like much if, more relationship centered. Yeah, yeah, like if if Eduardo was like in the crowd watching this on and like Mark's on the right. stand, it just it wouldn't work, right? Yeah, so it works really good. Yeah, uh, tactics reveal character. Who's yeah. this? This is Jamie. So this- this is for me. This was a quote from Sorkin's masterclass. I just wanted to mention it. Uh, he says, don't tell us who a character who a character is, who they are is betrayed by what they want and the tactics they will use to get what they want. And we talk about this a lot. This kind of goes back yes. to my old uh, SpongeBob, Batman and James Bond are locked in a room. There's a guard. Um, what tells us who they are is what they do in that scenario, not some describing who they are, not someone else telling us who they are. It's what they actually do. Um, and in this case, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of that when when Mark comes back and does a revenge blog, when he codes, when he when he screws over his friends, when he rips off the Winklevoss twins. These are the things that are telling us who he is. Nobody his has worship to really, of Sean. I feel his like worship. his yeah. worship of Sean is just absolutely. Yeah. These are the things that that tell us who he is. He, you don't have to have dialogue necessarily to tell us who he is. Um, you don't have to have people explain that doesn't, you know, you could have easily in the, in the uh, courtroom kind of stuff said, I'll tell you who Mark Zuckerberg is and blah, 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 yeah. blah, 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 blah. Um, that the movie does it once yeah. at the end. 
Yep. When she yep. says to him, you know, you wish you were an asshole instead of trying to act like one. That's right. kind of the only time it does it, but it doesn't feel cheap. No. Yeah. 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 That's her kind of summing up, uh, summing up the, the you know, summing up Mark like, Zuckerberg. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's like yeah. closing thesis from the beginning of the closing asshole thesis. thing. Well, to have yeah. to have this whole movie and no one just say it out loud, you need, you almost need yeah. someone to just say it once. <laughs> he needed to hear it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, I just wanted to mention that because yeah. that's a Sorkin quote. That's good. It's, it's funny, though, when I think back to this, like I said, this movie has a collection of like all these random moments. And as you're talking, mm-hmm. like I'm thinking about to like when the Winklevoss twins talk to um, talk to the head of Harvard or whatever to try to that's like this great scene, you know, and it's like it doesn't have to be when they rip the door handle off and they go, there you go with the thing um, or, or the Not introduction a wasted moment. Yeah, where the, the introduction to Sean Parker is like this great scene where the girl doesn't know who he is. And, you know, I, I am the guy who did Napster and all that stuff. Um, there's just so many like just I can watch like two minute snippets of this movie and I'm like, wow, that's a great scene. And they're just, <laughs> they just they're like relentless. They just keep kind of coming at you like that. And, and that scene with Sean Parker, too, is like for Eduardo and Mark. It says everything about the two of them, how they react to Sean, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. and it's viscerally different. <laughs> it's a great scene. It's such a great scene. Yeah. Um, opening and closing image. Yeah, and we we kind of related one piece of this already. So in the yeah. in the beginning, in the, in the opening scene, if I'm remembering the closing image right, because um, it is it is when he goes and types and tries to befriend Erica. Mm-hmm. There, there's mm-hmm. a couple beats that get echoed from the opening. So that seven page or whatever, nine pages we just read. Um, that that whole speech about the asshole thing comes back into play right before it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, you know, she says, you know, you'll think people won't like you because you're a nerd or girls won't like you, but it's because you're an asshole. And then later on, um, it's summed up by his lawyer right before the end that He's just trying to be an asshole. Like he's not an asshole, but he's, you know, so if he, if he changes his behavior, he wouldn't be an asshole is basically, he chooses the behavior. He chooses uh, to be an asshole. He chooses That's... to be a, an asshole. <laughs> and then, and then the closing shows that he hasn't really learned ever, anything. And it's, mm-hmm. this story is a tragic arc. We'll talk about that in a second in some ways. Yeah, that's why I put it th- this here because yeah. they go, that, go hand in hand. In that, mm. So a lot of times when you write, scripts like i always suggest the first two things you should come up with is the opening and closing of your character how do how do they start the movie like what what's their problem what's their flaw what's their longing and how do they end it what's is there hope are they the same are they worse what is that thing and then in the middle you go earn it right that's how you earn it and in this movie there's you know there's all the success there's all these life lessons that could be learned but he, he ignores them and he really ends up in the same place he was at the beginning of the yeah. movie. He, he's yeah. in the same clueless place where he's trying to find this friend out there. He's still fussing over Erica and he really hasn't changed. He hasn't learned anything, but he's still, we learn the lesson, but he doesn't, we learn yeah. the lesson and he doesn't. And that's a tragic arc in some ways when we know the lesson is there to be learned there are moments, but he chooses to reject it and go off in a different direction. Um, yeah. And and it ends sadly. And and the reason it's hopeful 
is because we look at that and we say, well, we know the lesson. So we go out positive. Mm -hmm. Like and take that away from the experience. We're not an asshole and we'll have a good life or something like that. You know, yeah. that's kind of what the message says. Like, as yeah, long I as put you that on. I, I wouldn't have sent her. A, I, I, would, I would think I wouldn't have sent Erica a request. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't have made yeah. that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's huge a, error. There's a couple things that I just wanted to talk about when I put this on here, which is it's a super instructive, easy, almost Disney level example of the opening uh, of the bookend of how to how mm -hmm. to construct that opening opening image, closing image before and after snapshot specifically for a tragedy in, in that like and it's another version of the old way, new way that I that I talk about old way. Mm -hmm and then the in a in a an arc plot hollywood ending you get the new way right the the before and after snapshot this is old way same way <laughs> right if it's old way same way that's tragic so yeah and there's yeah. there's another key part to the tragic arc so usually right around the middle of the story there's that moment of grace that look in the mirror moment where something happens that makes you question, maybe I'm flawed, right? Maybe, maybe I do have a problem. Maybe I should change. And it usually happens somewhere in the middle. Sometimes it's the midpoint. Sometimes it's right before, sometimes it's right after. And I, I clock this movie as having that when he sees Erica, mm -hmm. you know, and he goes and approaches her and it's almost like he approaches her like, Hey, I'm, I'm big time now. She'll, exactly. she'll appreciate me. And she just rejects him. And it's, it's the kind of moment in another movie where you have an arc where he reflects and maybe he does start to change. But instead, the next scene, he almost doubles down on being an asshole. Um, so he, he kind of – it kind of shows you that his trajectory yep. is still just off course. And that's why he has the tragic ending and it all makes sense. Yeah, like he leaves that conversation with – Eduardo going like that's so good that you apologize to her and he completely <laughs> ignores it and he's like we have to we have to expand yeah like it's yep. like right in that moment he goes the opposite direction like like he hasn't done enough to to kind of get her to capitulate yet or something yeah. you know he's still compensating yes. he's still like yes yes yeah. If it was, if he had cars, they would just keep getting more expensive, you know, like <laughs> yeah, if that was his thing and that was right. his thing buy right. a Hummer. <laughs> and then it all ends with him using the thing that made him the big boy to message her. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> he would show pretty, up at her house and like fucking tank. Like, look at this. <laughs> look at my, you know, Hummer limo. It's like, yeah, I hate you. <laughs> you never had to be a robo guy. Yeah. Right. I think that's everything, that's everything. guys. Yeah, I think we covered it. Even with reading, doing readings of scripts, the we, we still did it. Reading, I love it. <laughs> People are probably going to be like, <laughs> like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Do they know they're not actors? Yes. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed that exercise. That's fun. Yeah, yeah it's really good stuff. Good. But I think that's everything. Um, yeah. Did you guys have anything you wanted to plug? Add anything, uh, Jamie? You have some. St I mean, I know you already plugged your book. Yeah, that, that's really all I got going on. If you want to buy it, it's a kid's book, Monster Stompers. It's kind of like, I always say it's it's like Ghostbusters meets Godzilla, but it's it's for kids, but I kind of always write for adults. It's like, if you read it, kids will like it, but certain adults will like it too. Cool. I, I Do you want, do we want to tease what's coming next or do we want to leave them in sure. suspense? Sure. You can, nobody, I mean, Jamie yeah. already said nobody it. Nobody listens so. to this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no one cares. It's true. You can say. We're going to do Jaws for our 100th coming up 
uh, the yep. next episode. So I'm pumped about it. It's like a really important movie to me personally. A movie so. we have referenced so many times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, praise of the killer speech segments it's, alone. It's, it's just, like, it's got all the it tools. Is, it's wielding it's that every single trick in the book. So I, I, I had right. an awkward moment with Carl Gottlieb this weekend at a horror <laughs> convention. Um, there weren't there weren't a lot of people at the horror convention when I was there, and he was just sitting by himself. So I was like, I'm gonna walk up and just say hi. And I I don't know. I said something about the WGA, and we kind of and I asked him about the Jaws log, and then like three Jaws mega fans came in like carrying a shark like for him to sign, and he like completely ignored me and went to the went to those guys. So. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I was gonna ask him some questions for the podcast. We're about to do a podcast. Can you tell me? Uh, uh, what was, what kind of t- what t-shirt were you wearing, Jamie? What did it say on your t-shirt? I was literally wearing a Joel's t-shirt. I was, was, Are you serious? Yes. Were you? I, and honestly, I didn't plan it that way, but I have like Amityville, Shark something, or Cruises, or one of those. Do you realize that might have been why he didn't want to talk yeah. to you? Be like, oh, no, he, God. He, loved, oh he loved the guys carrying the shark. The I mean, they were they were like dressed up and stuff, and they had they had like you know, warning shark signs and, and a shark. And they were having them sign all kinds of stuff. And he lit up for them. He was like, you know, for me, he was like, okay, I can avoid. Well, that, yeah, you need to go as far as them next time. I, well, you need to I think he sensed, be Quint. I think yeah, he sensed I wasn't going to pay him $100 for a selfie. I was just going to, oh. like, and I wasn't. Um, the other guy there, Henry <laughs> Thomas, was there. And I almost paid him the $80 for a selfie uh, because I'm a big ET guy too. So I almost, wow. I was like, Henry Thomas, and he's all by himself. And if I just pay him eighty dollars, I can get a cell. And he's working still. I mean, he's doing yeah. stuff. Yeah, he's done a lot of shit. And I, but then I got too cheap. I was like, yeah, eighty dollars. What do I want a selfie for? I'll pay him. You should. I'll pay him for a. Should went and bought an ET shirt before you walked up to him. That's right. He'll be like, he'll be like, oh, the Amity Amity Island shirt. No. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's everything, yeah. guys. Uh, we'll see. We'll see everybody on episode one hundred. Hell yeah. And uh, you know, watch the social network at for no reason. It's just yeah, just because to celebrate the metaverse is over. <laughs> it's it's only on like MGM network or something. Yeah, did you guys? I, I you don't have to. Nobody has to listen to this. MGM Plus exists. <laughs> I was like, I what the hell is this? Thing. I, I, I know. I looked up on JustWatch.com. And I'm like, what is it? MGM Plus? I, I how do I not know? About I did it? a free trial of it, and I looked around. <laughs> like, should I keep it? Should I should I watch? Is there anything to watch during my seven day trial? And I was like, no. Not real. It has like nothing on there except old movies, you know. And I'm like, really? Don't people pay eight dollars for the old libraries? I guess I don't know. <laughs> I had this one on physical media. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I have a DVD, but yeah, MGM Plus. What the hell? <laughs> uh, how do these things stay alive? Oh, okay, I don't know. I mean, Hulu's going away because they can't afford it. It's going to oh merge into Disney gosh. Plus, and doesn't and you got the HBO Max thing. I, the weirdest part is, I think Amazon owns MGM, if I'm not they mistaken. Do. So why don't they just merge that in Amazon Prime? I don't understand. <laughs> why would you? Do it doesn't make sense. Yeah. People are paying that much for social network, man. <laughs> weird. It's weird. The rewatchers really want to hit that hard. So yeah, everyone, go out right. and get an MGM Plus subscription and. Uh, <laughs> We're gonna basically we're gonna cover all of NGM Plus that's, on the that's show. Gonna be the that's rest it. Of that's the our show. streaming service now. <laughs> Is that okay? All right. Thanks for all listening, right. everyone. Bye. Bye. 
Hey, this is Bob Rose, and thank you for listening to Writer's Blockbusters. If you'd like to financially support the show, please consider joining my Patreon. I've been producing the podcast for several years completely out of pocket, and I'd like to keep producing it ad-free and no longer at a loss. If you'd like to help, head on over to patreon.com slash Bob Rose sucks. That's right. Bob Rose sucks. And if you want the one and only Jimmy George to help polish up that writing project you're kind of struggling with, head on over to scriptbutcher.com. As a listener, you already know he's the best there is. Scriptbutcher.com. You can also support the show by simply sharing it or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate both. Thank you for listening and see you next episode.